What? Me worry? said Alfred E. Newman. So is it possible that childhood anxiety disorders have a prevalence of 10 to 20 percent? You're listening to special programming on psychiatry and psychology on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Anne-Marie Albano. Dr. Albano is an associate professor of clinical psychology in psychiatry and director of the Clinic for Anxiety and Related Disorders in the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at the Columbia University Medical Center in New York City. She's the president of the Association for Advancement of Behavior Therapy. Dr. Albano is the former editor of Cognitive and Behavioral Practice and is co-author of the recently published paper, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, Sertraline or a Combination in Childhood Anxiety. Today we are discussing treatment of anxiety disorders in children. Hi, Dr. Albano. Thanks for joining us for this special program. Thank you. It's my pleasure. How can there be so many children with anxiety disorders? I mean, I'm a pediatrician, and that number is greater than I would have guessed. Well, it's interesting because it's the pediatricians who are the front line for identifying anxiety disorders next to teachers, because you all see these children, you hear complaints of headaches and stomach aches, sleep disturbance, concentration difficulties, and these two Some people may seem like, well, this is typical of childhood, it's just a phase, but in fact, anxiety is not a phase for many children. Not a phase meaning they won't just grow out of it? That's exactly right. And while anxiety itself is a normal emotion, and we all experience it, it serves a very useful purpose of alerting us to danger or alerting us to things we need to do, when it is out of proportion to what is necessary for everyday living, then it becomes a problem. And in fact, as the epidemiology has shown us, it's a big problem for children and adolescents. You said when it becomes out of proportion, how does an anxiety disorder differ from normal fears and worries? How do you know when it's out of proportion? Well, we look for a number of signs in children, and we have the parents key into this. One is the fear reaction or the worry, is the upset more, much more than what you would expect for the situation at hand. In other words, if a teacher says on Monday there's going to be a test, a spelling test on Friday, and the child comes home and they start losing sleep and they're crying and they're complaining, they can't get their work done, that's out of proportion to the amount of anxiety that you normally should expect for an upcoming test. So when you see the anxiety is much more than what you would anticipate. The second thing is when children can't be reassured. No matter how much parents try to reassure them and calm them, try to help them, they still remain upset about the situation. And in fact, what happens then is the parents get drawn into doing a lot of reassurance and they find that no amount can really calm their child. So we we also look at that pattern. And then the third thing is, While we expect all children to have some anxiety at times, I mean, it's normal, if they don't grow accustomed to a situation and their anxiety goes away as they learn to master situations, then we also look and see, well, is this an anxiety disorder that is staying as opposed to normal anxiety that comes and goes over the course of time? Is there a problem with under-recognition and under-diagnosis? Well, the problem that you have is, first of all, if you think of where children are all day long, for the most part, they're in a classroom. And the children with anxiety are going to be more hidden 
They keep their worries to themselves. They may, over time, ask to see the nurse and do a lot of visits to the nurse and have complaints. But for the most part, in a school setting, the children who have disruptive behavior disorders come to the attention of mental health professionals first, and that would be, you know, ADHD or conduct-related issues. Then what happens is our next line, of course, are you pediatricians, and there what you might see is a pattern of the child being brought in for all these nonspecific complaints, their headaches, their stomach aches, but there's no associated fever, there's no strep and <laughs> strep reaction. You can't put your finger on what it is. So they go under-recognized until the parents start to associate events with these complaints. And like I said, upcoming tests or introductions to new people, having to socialize, having to be separated from mom and dad for some reason, such as if they want to go out to dinner without the kids. If the parents start telling you about these associations between complaints and events, then we get a picture of what's driving the upset and the anxiety. With the frequency at anywhere from 10 to 20 percent. The American Academy of Pediatrics has developed an autism screening toolkit, which is available to its memberships and have recommended routine screening at certain intervals for autism. Anxiety sounds a whole lot more common and probably more easily treated. Is there any work from your group or other groups you know that perhaps are developing an anxiety disorders screening toolkit, or are there some good screening toolkits available that pediatricians can implement in their offices? And, of course, there's not a great deal of time for any of these things, but something that you can use as a screening tool to pick up the problems? There actually are some good screening instruments that are not diagnostic per se, but they're going to put you on the path of referring the child for more of a comprehensive diagnosis. And physicians can have access to the multidimensional anxiety scale for children. And it, they actually have a short form of this. I forget, I'm sorry if it's 10 items, but this could be administered as a questionnaire in the waiting room to parents and to the child. The multidimensional anxiety scale is available from multi-health systems, and it's got great validity and reliability and it's also very sensitive to picking up on kids who have a diagnosis. And then there are a number of other kinds of screens that you might use an interviewer for, such as a nurse practitioner or an assistant in the office, the pediatric anxiety rating scale, a longer diagnostic interview is the anxiety disorders interview schedule. But these are all validated methods of identifying anxiety in kids. I'd like to welcome those who are just joining us for this special segment on psychiatry and psychology on ReachMD Radio, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Anne-Marie Albano. We're discussing treatment of childhood anxiety disorders. Now, your study that was recently published compared cognitive behavioral therapy with medication compared with a combination. What made this study important and why did you decide to do it? Well, given the epidemiology and given the fact that these anxiety disorders are out there and are impacting upwards of 20% of children, we knew that this was time. In fact, the study was long overdue. One of the treatments, cognitive behavioral therapy, was developed a long time ago by Philip Kendall and colleagues. And this has been around, but it has never been tested against a medication condition. And by itself, the cognitive behavioral therapy and other trials has shown upwards of 60 to 70% response rate for kids. 
Then with the introduction of the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, we saw a number of trials demonstrating very good efficacy for these treatments when in a medication-only treatment. And so we knew it was time to put these two against one another, but also the big gaping question in the field was, well, what about when you combine them? There were no studies evaluating the combination of CBT and medication. So it was important for us to do this from a public health perspective because we wanted to know, do our treatments by themselves or in combination stand up, and will we then be able to offer parents more options and viable good options for their children. I guess everybody's sitting back hoping the combination works better than either one alone, but what were your results? Well, in fact, the combination does give you more bang for the buck, and that is 81% of the kids, and these were children ages 7 to 17, 81% of those in the combination treatment improved, and that was significantly different from the 60% in the cognitive behavioral therapy alone and the 55% taking an SSRI sertraline alone. And both of those were significantly different then from pill placebo. So in short, yes, combination does provide an advantage, but we now are starting to look really deeply into the data to see if we could come up with some algorithms for who would you refer for combination treatment versus one of the monotherapies. Any prediction on or direction you can give us? Just, again, we have a lot of primary care physicians out there who are going to be faced with this, and giving a pill is always the quick fix, and cognitive behavioral therapy requires, it seems like, probably more time. Any prediction on what somebody could look at or key into as to determine who should be referred for either the treatments or the combination? I'm going to stick with the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry's guidelines for the moment on this and say that if this is a new onset anxiety, if it's in the more mild to moderate range and the child is treatment naive, we'd go with cognitive behavioral therapy first to give them a chance of doing the the less invasive procedure, if you will, or, you know, the non-medication. But We do want to pay attention, and we think what we're going to find with our results is that the combination is really where you want to go for comorbidity, and especially for kids who have been struggling with their anxiety for the long term and may be evidencing uh, greater problems in functioning, such as difficulty with attending school and things like that. So we'd certainly say combination when you have difficult cases, treatment refractory cases, or cases with comorbidity. There are different components to cognitive behavioral therapy, exposures, relaxation, anger management, behavior management. Which modalities did you use in your study? This was a treatment protocol called the coping cat, and it combines psychoeducation, cognitive restructuring that's age-appropriate, so helping the children identify their self-talk and turn this into coping-focused, problem-solving action plans, and then behavioral exposure, which is getting the children to face their fears. There was also a relaxation component, but the primary, really what drives CBT for anxiety disorders is that behavioral exposure segment where they're getting into, in a systematic way, confronting what causes them to have anxiety. There are also different forms of anxiety disorders. Did you see differences in responsiveness based on the type of anxiety disorder the child had? In this study, we enrolled children with separation anxiety disorder, social phobia, 
and generalized anxiety disorder, those three. And we have not looked yet at any differential response to the different treatments. We do know that the robust results showed us that they all responded overall equally well in the larger outcomes. So we don't know that yet. I will say a separate study looked at obsessive-compulsive disorder in children, and there, too, the combination treatment and then both monotherapies of CBT or SSRI medication worked really well for children. I also noted from the study that the children needed a minimal IQ of 80 to be included in the study. Does the child's IQ affect the response to therapy or guide you as to whether to recommend cognitive behavioral therapy versus medication? Well, we wanted to give the CBT in this study a fair test, and we wanted to do the CBT as uniformly as we could. So that's why we had a lower IQ of of 80. However, in community practice, when children come in and they have more cognitive challenges, learning disabilities, let's say reading disabilities and such, the cognitive behavioral therapist can flexibly do more behavioral intervention and parent intervention and then also exposure, then rely on the cognitive component. So this treatment can be flexibly applied, and there are studies outside of this one that has looked at that as a monotherapy and how to do that with different populations. There's a lot of choice in SSRIs. Why did you choose sertraline, and will you be repeating the study using any of the other medications in this class? Well, let me say that a prior study that was done that was sponsored by the National Institutes of Mental Health looked at fluvoxamine for these three disorders for children, and that's Luvox. It had a, I think, 71% response rate for the medication as compared to 20-something percent uh, placebo response. That was the impetus, actually, that study for putting this one together. We chose sertraline for this trial because it was approved in children as young as six who have obsessive-compulsive disorder and because there were preliminary studies with generalized anxiety disorder and social phobia separately with sertraline. And then we also had to have a cost component to this that it was in the interest of the study to use a medication that we're able to obtain that had some efficacy but also was given to us for free. I'd like to thank Dr. Anne-Marie Albano, who's been our guest, and we've been discussing cognitive behavioral therapy versus medication versus combination treatment in the treatment of anxiety disorders of childhood. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and you've been listening to a special segment on psychiatry and psychology on ReachMD Radio, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I invite you to listen to ReachMD online, on demand, and on the air, and to visit us at ReachMD.com. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I wish you good day and good health.